Amen. Y'all can be seated. Our preschoolers can make their way out to their class. Y'all can head on toward the back doors. If you're staying in the room, I want to invite you to take out a copy of God's Word and turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. We've been walking through this letter to the Philippians, the the church at Philippi, uh, since the middle of January, and we will continue this series until the end of this month, finishing it up the week before Palm Sunday, and we'll have a Palm Sunday service, a Good Friday service, and Easter Sunday service once we finish Philippians, and then we'll turn back to the Old Testament as is our typical pattern of preaching. Uh, But we are here in Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. Love to get your eyes on a passage. If you don't have a Bible, look off somebody who's close to you. Um, If they don't have a Bible, just somebody get out a phone and pull out the app. If neither of you have a phone, um, I don't know if those types of people exist in here. But if you don't, we have it on the screen behind us. Let's, Let's take a look at God's Word. Paul commands us in Philippians 3, verse 1. He issues a command. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's a command. Rejoice in the Lord. And he means it. And sometimes we have to remind ourselves of that. This isn't just something to serve as inspiration in a devotion time. Paul commanded the Philippian believers, he exhorted them, rejoice in the Lord, and he expected them to obey it. And he expects us. Now listen, this command for joy in the Lord is not coming from a man who is a stranger to sorrow. Paul knew agony. The moment of writing this, he's in prison in Rome. He knows hardship. He knows struggle. He knows doubt. He knows betrayal. He knows abandonment. As we saw in our passage last week, he knows anxiety. He knows loneliness. He knows. He knows what each of those experiences feel like. And he's probably feeling a lot of that as he's writing this. He knows also the suffering of the people of Philippi to whom he is writing. He knows. Still, he commands, rejoice in the Lord. Why? Because he also knows Jesus. Here's what I want to encourage you to do this morning. As best as you're able, try to lay aside your presuppositions about the possibility of joy in your life. Now, you may read or hear Philippians 3.1 and roll your eyes in skepticism, or maybe you get a little angry or frustrated. How, how can I rejoice in the Lord? No one knows what I'm going through right now. And you feel that way. I want you just for a moment, conceptually, to lay that aside and allow yourself to hear the word of the Lord. We get in our own way sometimes when we approach the scriptures. Get out of your own way. Allow yourself to hear what Paul is saying. Hear him out in his argument. He's saying, 
we can actually look to Jesus for happiness, for satisfaction, for joy, and we can truly find it in him. Now, so far we've seen many occasions for joy in this letter, but now Paul is approaching the ultimate object of happiness, Jesus himself. And in light of his command in verse 1 to rejoice in the Lord, I want to show you three things from this passage as he develops his argument, his defense for why we should rejoice in the Lord. I want to show you three things. First, I want to show you there is an ultimate threat to your joy in Jesus. I want to show you the ultimate threat to joy in Jesus. Second, I want to show you the ultimate reason for joy in Jesus. So he doesn't just give an empty command. He shows us why we can rejoice in Jesus. And then finally, I want you to see the ultimate power of joy in Jesus. We're going to see a threat, a reason, and the power of joy. Let's look at them one by one. First, Paul shares a threat. So he says, rejoice in the Lord. Then he moves to warn the Philippians with really strong language about this group of people who had been in and around the church. Listen to what he says in verses 2 and 3. He says, look out for the dogs. Rejoice in the Lord. By the way, look out for the dogs. I mean, I, didn't, I never expected to see a Beware the Dog-like poster in, in Scripture. <laughs> We've got one right here in front of us. Beware the dog. Look out for the dogs, Paul says. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And then he contrasts that, and he says in verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He's warning them about the dogs and the evildoers and the mutilators. Who is he talking about and what is going on and what does this have to do with joy in Jesus? Well, Paul wants to warn the Philippian believers that the most ultimate threat to their joy in the Lord is that they would place their confidence in anyone or anything other than than Jesus. And there was a group that was encouraging them or teaching them to do this. And, and his descriptions of the group shows us that he's talking about his ultimate nemesis, the Judaizers. The Judaizers. These were Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians who were teaching that in order for Gentiles to truly belong to the people of God, they had to first believe in Jesus. All right, that's good. They had to believe in Jesus. And second, if they really want to truly belong to God's people, they have to believe in Jesus and they have to be circumcised. And if you're not circumcised and if you do not adhere to the Mosaic law, you cannot be saved. You cannot truly belong to God because that's the only way to possess the righteousness that counts with God. This is what they were teaching. Gentiles, you've believed in the Lord. That's great. You believe in Jesus. Awesome. There's another step you have to take. If you really want to belong, if you really want to be saved, you have to be circumcised. There's something more you have to do. Paul uses three words to describe this group. He calls them dogs. 
Now, when Paul does this, he's, he's not hurling an insult at them. He's like, you know, watch out for those dogs over there. Just like, man, that is really aggressive, you know? It's like Paul was really happy one moment, and then he got really mad. He just got ticked off by something, I guess. No, that's not, he's not hurling an insult. Jews use this phrase to refer to the Gentiles, those who were outside the covenant community, those who were considered to be ritually unclean. And so what Paul's doing here is he is reversing the false teaching of these Judaizers. He's saying that they are the true dogs. They are the ones who are truly ritually unclean because they are adding to the gospel and actually steering people away from true righteousness, even though they are purporting to be driving people toward true righteousness. So they're dogs. And then he calls them evildoers. But this this word is, is so loaded. He's not just saying that they're bad guys. You know, watch out for those who would add to the gospel. They're bad guys. He's saying so much more than that. He's clarifying for the Philippians that this group who claims true righteousness isn't what they appear to be. Their apparent good works are not genuine, and they do not produce true righteousness as they claim. They are evildoers. They are dogs. And then finally, he says... They are mutilators. Now, when Paul does this, he's not just referring to circumcision in a really crude way. He's he's making an important point. He's dramatically communicating that even their religious act of circumcision has more in common with pagan mutilation rituals than it does to obedience to the law of the Lord itself. You see, it, this is, this is a, uh, an exercise in irony. This group believes that their circumcision is what creates their belonging to the covenant community. So Paul, he takes their greatest source of pride and then interprets it as the surest sign that they don't belong at all. They're saying, because we are circumcised and because you must be circumcised, this is how you get in the community. Paul says, if that's what you believe and that's what you teach, that's what keeps you out of the covenant community. The real threat to joy is found in verse 3. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and there's one thing we don't do. We put no confidence in the flesh. We do not glory in the flesh. He's saying, unlike these false teachers, we truly belong to God's people. We are recipients of God's covenant because we put no confidence in the flesh. The biggest threat to our joy in the Lord is related to where we place our confidence, our faith, our trust. The question at hand is, where are you placing your confidence for righteousness? before the Lord? In what source are you seeking personal justification, personal vindication? And Paul is warning us against placing confidence in ourselves for righteousness. And I believe that he warns the Philippians and by extension us so forcefully and so passionately Because this is the most real, the most subtle threat to happiness in the Lord. We literally cannot obey Philippians 3.1 unless we heed the warning of Philippians 3.2 and 3. And depending on 
yourself for righteousness makes joy in Jesus not just unlikely, it makes it impossible. You cannot have any joy in God if you are depending on yourself for righteousness. So he's saying here, beware of placing confidence in yourself. Now, how, how do we do this? How does this show up in our lives? Because here's the most difficult part in going to the Bible and, and, and trying to gather something and apply it to your life. The gap in, in context. So Paul is dealing with a specific thing that's happening at a specific church at a specific time. And we're not dealing with any of that. Circumcision, we just look at this and we're like, it's so foreign to us. They, they're saying that in order to, to really belong, that they're going to be circumcised. Were there people, I mean, Michael, I'm like, there are people actually willing to do that? Are you kidding me? It's so foreign. I can't believe it. There are people who were believing in Jesus and then these guys come in and say, hey, by the way, um, there's one more thing you got to do. Oh, okay. Um, Paul said all I had to do is believe. Well, there's one more thing. Well, what is it? You have to be circumcised. Oh, okay, I'll do that. Really? Like, I mean, it's just, it's so foreign to us that, you know, we understand, okay, these people may have been tempted toward this, either from coming from a pagan background or a Jewish background, and so this is really important, but for us, this this seems irrelevant. How does it show up? What should we be on the lookout for? Not just in the teachings of other people, but in our own hearts and lives. You see, okay, we we have to say it out loud. We have to define what's going on. Confidence in the flesh, in the context of our passage, refers to this, this group of Jewish Christians, the Judaizers, attempting to justify themselves. That's what's going on. So sometimes it's helpful just to define it and then see how we do that thing. So that's what's going on. They are attempting to justify themselves, to prove themselves worthy, to prove that they belong, to work for their righteousness. That's, that's essentially what, what they're doing. Now, here's how it shows up in our lives. When we have that incessant inner urge to prove to other people, to prove to ourselves, maybe even in some strange way prove to God that we matter, that we're significant, that we are important, that we count for something, that we're the type of person that other people would want to look to and be like, that we we have justified our existence on this earth. See, that's what righteousness really is. It's, It's to live up to the standard of rightness. We want to be right. Ultimately, ultimately it plays out in wanting to be right with God. What what do you want others to think about when they see you in public or they hear your name just in conversation? What do you want them to think of? And a more important question is, how much do you care about that? You see, we often seek to justify ourselves through spiritual performance or our work performance or our family performance. And our deepest source of pride and Joy is found in what we can produce with our own hands. That's the biggest threat to joy in Jesus because you can either rejoice in the work of your own hands 
and be confident and be prideful in what you have brought to the table, what you have, your, your own performance, or you can find confidence and faith and joy in Jesus. But there can't be a blending of these two things. Jesus is not just an add-on to our lives. Now, this can show up in a couple ways. Arrogance or pity. Now, some of us are prone to say, look at me. You don't say this out loud. Some people do. Look at me. Look at what I've done. Do you notice me? I notice me. God will surely notice me. And what I have done, look at how faithful I've been. Look at how obedient I've been. Then we compare ourselves to other people. And it's like, see how they failed in this way? I didn't fail in that way. No. And then maybe you just compare yourself to yourself. And you're like, I didn't used to be this way. Look at how much better I'm doing. Look at how hard I have worked to, to get to where I am in life. Look at me. Look at what I've done. Look at my faithfulness. Look at my obedience. Look at the things that I don't do, that I avoid. Look at what I pursue. And then we have this confidence. We know that we're right with God and others because we know we've earned it. We deserve it. It shows up through arrogance, but it also shows up through pity. This is the darker side of confidence in the flesh because it doesn't feel like confidence. And it goes like this. Look at me. Look at what I've done. I have no hope of salvation. I have no hope of being right with God. I have no hope of, of, of being forgiven of anything. Look, look at what I've done. Look at how I've failed. I'm a failure. I'm a loser. I'll never be enough. By my standard, God's standard, anybody's standard, it doesn't matter. Throw anybody's standard out there and I can't do it. Now these are very different expressions, but both of them are placing confidence for righteousness and justification and vindication in the self and not in Christ. And if that's the perspective that you're holding on to, I'm, this is a guarantee, I guarantee you, you cannot be happy in Jesus. Because he's not the object of your joy. You, you are the object. The work of your hands is the object. And it's either providing you a sense of joy that won't last, or it's not providing you a sense of joy, but you're looking for it. You're placing your confidence in the flesh. If we're trying to earn our worth, accomplish our justification, the object of our joy can't be Jesus. As I said, there's zero compatibility between confidence in Jesus and confidence in yourself for righteousness. If we place our confidence in ourselves for righteousness and justification or in our status as a child of God, it's not just that our joy in Jesus will be dashed against the rocks. Joy at all will be dashed against the rocks because we'll never be satisfied. We'll never be at rest. I know, I know the feeling. You feel, you feel it especially, and I hate to try to identify uh, uh, to pinpoint, you know, when in life you feel this way. I, I can only go based on, you know, the times in my own life to speak to this. I felt this really heavily, like in college and, and just a little bit after college 
When, when I first moved down here, for those of you who were members of Trace Cross and when I first moved here, you have no idea, maybe you did because it was so transparent, but you have no idea how hard I tried to prove myself that I'm important, that I'm significant. You should listen to me. I know what I'm doing. I know what I'm talking about. And it's not bad to have ambition. It's not bad to work hard. And it's not bad. To, no, that's bad in and of itself. But it gets warped really quickly when that's where we're placing our confidence. And it showed up for me when I did fail. I, could, I was absolutely crushed. If I, didn't, if I preached a sermon that I felt like just completely flopped, I couldn't hardly move the next day. That's placing my confidence in the flesh. And there's no rest to be found in that because even when you, I would preach the best sermon I could have possibly preached, it still wasn't good enough because I'm placing my confidence in the flesh. We'll never be at rest. We'll never be satisfied. We'll be like Sisyphus. Have you ever heard this story? The story of Sisyphus? Some of you looking at me with the cocked heads to the side. Okay, well, I promise we're going somewhere. Um, in Greek mythology, now hold on, come, stay with me, all right? Um, <laughs> didn't expect to hear that on Sunday morning, did you? In uh, Greek mythology, um, it's really the only story that I'm, I'm familiar with in Greek mythology. Um, but there's this king named Sisyphus, and essentially he cheats death. The story goes he cheats death once, and then he cheats death again. He's cheated death a couple times Death came for him, and he takes death captive. And the god of death, Hades, he punishes Sisyphus for cheating death. And here's how he punished him. He forced him to roll a massive boulder up a hill. Only for the boulder, once he got all the way, almost to the top, the boulder rolls right back down the hill. And he has to go back down and get the boulder and push it all the way up the hill, and it gets almost to the top, and then it rolls back down for all eternity. <laughs> That was, that was his hell um, for Sisyphus. Listen, this is what confidence in the flesh or confidence in your own abilities or performance is like. We push that boulder all the way up the hill. We're impressed with our strength. We're proving ourselves worthy to anyone who's watching. We matter. We're important. Look at how worthy we are. And we're just about to attain the righteousness and justification and vindication we've worked so hard for. And then the boulder comes crashing back down the hill. And then we go and we push it back up and then it comes right back down over and over again. There is no ultimate satisfaction to be found in trusting yourself or hoping in your performance for justification or righteousness. In the end, this is a fact. You will never be good enough to earn or merit the righteousness of God. You'll never get the bowl to the top of the hill and once you come to that realization, listen, this is important. You're at a fork in the road. Because that, that is a fact that's stamped on life. You can't, you can't do it. And you think you can. And it feels like you can. But you can't. And then once you see it and you realize it, it's just a fact that's stamped on your life, you're at a fork in the road. And you can choose one of two paths. One leads to despair. And one leads to pleasures forever more. You can either give up or you can substitute the object of your confidence and boasting. And if you don't believe me, listen to how Paul recounts his own conversion. Look at verse 4. So he's just said, 
Okay, we are the true covenant community. We don't place confidence in the flesh. And then he says in verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's essentially saying these Judaizers who are coming after you guys and trying to say, like, hey, here's the model of what you need to be. You need to believe in Jesus and you need to adhere to the law. He said, I would be their ideal candidate. Like they would look to me in my past life and say, that's exactly what you need to become. He had more reason to boast in the flesh than anybody else. And essentially he's saying, hey, forget those guys. They have nothing on me. They think they've done something impressive. They think they've done enough to merit a place with God. Are you kidding me? Look at my life. Look at what I have accomplished. Look at my genetics and my lineage. And he's saying the same thing to us. Listen to Paul. Open your ears to the word of the Lord. He's saying, you think you're impressive? You you think that you can be good enough or smart enough or respected enough to earn true righteousness? You've got nothing on me. But Paul's false boasting here, it was to show that, that he was kind of like those guys that are going through the NFL combine right now, you know? Those guys, they've got, they've got a quarterback from Florida, and they've got a quarterback from Kentucky, and these guys, and they're out there, and everyone's talking about how impressive they are. They're in a field in shorts and a T-shirt with no rush, just able to launch the ball as far as they can, and they're like, oh, my goodness, look at what this guy has done. Look how fast he is. Look how strong he is. Look at how skilled he is. And at the end of the day, none of that actually means that they're going to succeed, that they're going to matter as NFL players. It's all a mirage. Paul has an impressive track record, so he has reason to boast in himself, but he knows that neither his genetics nor his spiritual accomplishments could provide the only righteousness that counts. That's what leads to his transformation in verses 7 and 8. Confidence in yourself for true righteousness and justification is a serious threat to your joy in Jesus. If you want to rejoice in the Lord, you have to renounce confidence in yourself. It's the only way you can get it. And how do we know that? Because of the way he contrasts the Philippians with these Judaizers. For we are the circumcision, he says. We worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. This is how we guard against this threat of self-justification and self-righteousness. We worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And you know, Paul isn't exactly quoting Jesus in the way he responded to the woman at the well, but he comes close. He's showing the Philippians that even though they're Gentiles, they have become the circumcision. They have been set apart as God's people. And as God's new people, he tells them, worship by the Spirit, glory in Christ. And this is where it's important. Our worship plays a role in our faith in the justifying grace of God. Our worship fuels our joy in Jesus And so we need to make sure we are guarding our worship practices so that they increase our confidence in Christ. That's what we seek to do every Sunday morning. How can we increase your confidence in Jesus and not in yourself? That should be the goal of every worship service in every church. So there's a serious threat to joy. 
But then he shows us, even though there's something that can keep you from happiness in Jesus, you need to see why there is so much joy to be found in him. And so he gives us this amazing reason. And the reason kind of catches you off guard. You expect him to kind of list out a bunch of stuff about Jesus. Here's essentially what he says. You should rejoice in the Lord because Jesus is superior to everything else. Jesus is better than everything else. Jesus is better than everyone else. Jesus is better than all of your past accomplishments. Anything you could boast in, Jesus is better. Anything you take pride in, Jesus is better. This is, this is what he's saying here. Look what he says in verse 7. So after he just lists off this truly impressive spiritual track record, he says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. In light of his conversion, Paul now views his past spiritual success as total and utter spiritual bankruptcy. It's empty now as he looks back. Notice the way his thinking has changed. What he once thought was gain, he counts as loss. And in fact, he says, I now count everything as loss. He admits that he has lost all things with reference to his former pride. And then he says, what he once cherished as proof of his self-righteousness, he now counts as rubbish. Now, what led to such a dramatic change in perspective? We saw it over and over again. It was for the sake of Christ. It was for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. It was for his sake. It was so that he may gain Christ. You see, when we encounter the real Jesus, our past sources of personal pride dissolve before our very eyes. You put Jesus and who he is and what he has done for you up against anything else that you are tempted to use as a reason to think that you're a worthy person. It just pales in comparison. It just disintegrates before your eyes. Everything on which Paul had placed his confidence and hope has proven to be empty, powerless to save. And this is what happens. This is the effect. Seeing the superior greatness of Jesus gives us eyes to see our own self-righteousness, our own self-justifying efforts much more clearly. Only when you see Jesus for who he truly is. We're able to see that what we once thought benefited us had actually been destroying us. And it was destroying us because confidence or hope or faith in ourselves to achieve righteousness totally blinds us to our need for the real righteousness that only God can provide. Paul's eyes have been opened to this reality. Knowing Jesus overshadows anything else that we might have considered a gain. And again, we see it here. Y'all, you can either boast in yourself or you can boast in Jesus. Is on that on. And Jesus will always and forever be better than your best and most consistent spiritual season. He is always and forever better than 
the best religious resume that you could build. Now, thankfully, Paul doesn't just give us this empty phrase. Hey, guys, um, rejoice in the Lord because he's just better. Just better. He just is. That's, that's how some of my friends think I am when I debate uh, who's the better uh, basketball player, Michael Jordan or LeBron James. They think that's all I'm saying is that LeBron's just better. He's better, and they've got all these reasons, and they think I don't have any. And I'm like, oh, come on now. You know, we've, we've all got our reasons for it, and we just debate all day long. Um, listen, he doesn't just say, Jesus is just better. He tells us why. He tells us why. And there's one reason. Jesus is better because the righteousness that counts before God is found only in him. Look what he says in verse 9. Paul desires that he would be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Gaining Christ means gaining the righteousness we've tried to earn through our own efforts. True gain is found in being found in Christ. And the false teachers, they were dangerous to the Philippians, not just because they're adding to the gospel, and not just because that was false. They were dangerous because they were potentially drawing people away from Jesus. And why is that important? Because if they're drawing people away from Jesus, they're drawing people away from true righteousness. You see, Jesus lived, he actually lived, the life that we are striving to live. All of your efforts to justify yourself, to, to, to show that you are important or to earn a place with God, to be righteous, Jesus did it. He perfectly fulfilled the law. He was perfectly righteous. And then Jesus died in our place, bearing the weight of all of our unrighteousness, of all of our burdens of imperfection that we carry, he bore all of that on himself. And he suffered the punishment that we deep down know that we deserve. He took all of it on himself, not a part of it. So if you're still trying to bear it and you have trusted in Jesus, you need to release that burden. He has already borne it on the cross. If you struggle with perfectionism, and you, want, you just want to prove yourself, you, your striving ceases at the foot of the cross. Jesus has done everything that's necessary for you to be right with God. To be found in Jesus is to find a righteousness that can only be received. I love the language he uses here about faith. It can only be received. It could never be earned. That's why faith is required, which is just receiving. If you want to experience joy in Jesus, you have to give up on your efforts to justify yourself. You have to stop striving to prove yourself worthy. You have to stop looking to yourself and to your own performance for confidence, hope, of significance, satisfaction. Instead, we need to follow the example of Paul and look outside of ourselves for the righteousness that only God can grant. One of the commentators I read this week, Silva, this is what he said about 
the intersection of faith and joy. He says, faith is the act of counting as loss all those things that may be conceived as grounds for self-confidence before God. That's what faith is. Faith involves a release of confidence in anything that you, you think would count before God. And, and you're shifting the object of your faith and your joy. We have reason to rejoice in Jesus because in turning to him in faith, we lose everything and at the same time, we are found. Jesus has done everything that needs to be done for your existence as a person to be justified. You no longer have to prove yourself worthy. It ends at the cross. Your striving ends. Jesus has done everything that needs to be done for your past failures to be forgiven. You no longer have to look back in shame or look forward with anxiety about how you're going to blow it again. Jesus has done everything that needs to be done for you to be saved. Listen to me this morning. You no longer have to try to save yourself. Here's what that means. Looking to Jesus for joy will not ultimately end in disappointment. You may not feel joy in the Lord right now, but that's not because of a deficiency in him. Anything other than Jesus that you're placing your confidence in is going to promise to satisfy you. And ultimately, will always let you down. The boulder will fall back down the hill. But Jesus never will. So look to him with the eyes of faith. Count everything else as rubbish in comparison to knowing him. Trust him, rest in him, rejoice in him. There's one more thing I want to show you. One more thing. This joy in Jesus through faith, through the reception of the righteousness that actually counts to become what we're striving to be and the joy that comes along with that, it has a powerful effect on your life. Rejoicing in Jesus isn't here in this life an end in itself. It has a transforming effect on us. The purpose of our joy in Jesus is that we would live in the power of the resurrection, share in the reality of his sufferings, and then one day actually physically attain future resurrection. So this is what Paul writes in verse 10. He writes, after this wonderful exposition of faith and righteousness that comes from God as a gift, he says, so that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. A a more accurate way of saying this would be knowing Jesus means to experience his death and resurrection. It's a way of combining these phrases here. To know Jesus is to experience his death and resurrection. Now, we'll talk about resurrection first. Experiencing the power of the resurrection refers to our spiritual transformation into the image of Jesus. Do you all remember that that famous passage in Romans 6? 
Romans 6, where he's, he's been talking all about justification by faith, and then, you know, Paul realizes, okay, they're going to think that because God is so gracious, we can just live however we want. And then he says in, in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. Why? He says, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Why? In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, when your confidence and joy are in Jesus, it opens you up to a whole new way of living. You're no longer trying to earn a place with God or justify yourself. God has given you his righteousness as a gift. He has justified you. And from this place of rest, we now work to live a new life in the power of his resurrection. We are new creations. Your life is now in Jesus, which means in some mysterious way, his life is yours and your life is his. Living in the power of the resurrection means that we will pursue attitudes and actions that reflect the life of the risen Jesus. So we will pursue righteousness. But do you see how it's different now? We pursue righteousness not to earn it, but to grow into it. But growth in the power of the resurrection is not easy. Transformation in the Christian life is not easy, which is why I'm so glad Paul said we don't just share in his resurrection, we share in his sufferings. There is a cost to joy in Jesus. It involves the inner suffering of counting things you viewed to be gain as loss. If you want to follow Jesus, there are things in your life right now that you're going to have to renounce and leave behind because it will keep you from joy in him. If we're going to share in the power of his resurrection through our new life, We must also share in his suffering and death through renouncing our old life. There's a true sense in which we should be spiritually dying every day. It's the only way to follow Jesus. We have to die to ourselves. We have to put sin to death. We have to confess and repent. Rejoicing in the Lord empowers us to share in Christ's sufferings because in him we count everything else as loss. Now, sharing in the suffering of Christ isn't limited to the the spiritual experience of conversion. We bear the sufferings and death of Jesus through disappointment and frustration and disease and job loss and financial ruin and chronic pain and depression, and we could go on and on. And I really want to be careful, I almost didn't include this, I want to be careful how I encourage you to face seasons of suffering. Because it's so easy to be flippant about it. Say, oh, Romans 8, 28, all things are going to work out. Or, well, you share in Christ's sufferings, get over it. And we got to be careful how we talk about this. And when we suffer, here's what we want more than anything else. We want to know why. Why would God allow me to go through this? What's the purpose? What's the point? 
And I want to challenge you. Read the scriptures. You won't find too many instances of just people who suffered receiving clear answers to that. Which is actually quite a comforting thing. Because if we're honest, as desperately as we want to know why we suffer, oftentimes we don't know exactly why. We may have some thoughts. Well, because I experienced this, it benefited me in this way. But to apply that and then say, well, that's why I suffer. I mean, maybe, maybe not. God is God and we are not. So there are things we know and there are things we don't know. Paul strikes the balance here pretty beautifully. He doesn't share the secret of why we suffer. He doesn't pretend to know God's purpose in your pain. What Paul does is he reminds us that to suffer is to be very close to Jesus. To suffer is to be near him. To suffer is to identify with him in ways that you probably can't in any other way. Silva says again, the stinging reality of Christian suffering is our reminder that we have been united with Christ. So I want to remind you, as winter is turning to spring, remember that sorrow tarries for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Remember that light follows darkness. And remember that just as the death of Jesus wasn't the end of his story, your share in his suffering and death isn't the end of your story. Resurrection is here and resurrection is coming. And that's why he concludes with this in verse 11, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Your greatest hope in life isn't that one day when you die, you'll become an angel or a floating spirit for all of eternity. That's not our greatest hope. That's not the end of our story. Your greatest hope in life is that one day when you die, the body that your friends and family put in the ground will one day be raised to imperishable glory. Imperishable glory forevermore. A perfect glorified body. That day is coming. Joy in Jesus empowers us to live new lives as we share in his resurrection power and as we renounce our old lives and share in his suffering. Joy in Jesus empowers us to hope against all hope that our present pain will one day cease as we are raised to eternal glory with him. So church, this morning, this week, this year, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice though the threat of self-righteousness remains imminent. Rejoice because you see the superior worth of knowing Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord.